Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined by a very sick Nizar al-Hassan. What's going on, man? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's either the allergy or the flu or whatever it is. It's really bad. Are are you okay? Are you are you going to be able to like slog through the next 40 minutes or so? Hoping so. Hoping okay. So. All right. I, I hope so too, because... We, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Amal movement. We're going to our our second in our series of party profiles. Uh, we did the FPM last year, and today we're going to be talking about the Amal movement. But but before we get to that, we've got just a ton of news to get through for the week. Uh, first thing, some good news. It emerged yesterday that the top military prosecutor at the military tribunal had declined to press charges or to bring charges against four military personnel who had been charged with sodomy, being gay. This is sort of like a huge, huge thing. This is the first time something like this has happened. And the prosecutor, the technically the government commissioner who acts as the top prosecutor at the court, Peter Germanos, he said that sodomy is not punishable by law um, as Article 534, this sort of infamous part of the Lebanese penal code, uh, is not explicit enough in, in, in terms of like what kinds of acts are covered under it. And so, you know, what is it? It says it outlaws the sexual acts that are contrary to nature. Well, what, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly. And and so these four uh, these four military personnel will not be charged, and this is, this is a big thing. This is a big move forward for the military tribunal, which is not necessarily known as a beacon of liberalism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wish actually the news was going wider than it is. Actually, you know, it's it's not going viral at all. People are not discussing it. I, I wish they were more because uh, it's these small things that happen that kind of bring the conversation to a different point. You know, the conversation on LGBT issues in Lebanon is still quite um, backwards, and we need these little victories or these little sources of hope. So yeah, we should point at these things when they happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the big news today, uh, and we're recording this on Sunday, is that there is a huge uh, brouhaha going on in Tunis where our president, Michel Aoun, uh, is attending the Arab League Summit. And so I, I don't know if anything's actually going to come out of this or not, but uh, he's there today. He, he was in Russia this week as well. He went up to Moscow and met with Vladimir Putin. And uh, it, it, was, it was very striking, the difference between his meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin and his meeting with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo mm. just a few days earlier. Definitely Putin would, I mean, I mean, nothing huge came out of this, right? There wasn't any sort of announcement of like Russia's going to invest billions of dollars in the Lebanese. There was nothing like that. But there was sort of this, you know, we're going to keep on talking about these things that are important to Lebanon, things like refugees, things like the economy. But it seems that Aoun went there with a very specific request, help us return the refugees to Syria. That was really, I think, the highlight. And the one thing, the one issue that Aoun sought Putin's help in, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is number one thing, no matter where he goes outside, talking about refugees. Yeah. And and the Russians agreed to, like, step up their efforts. And now we have all of these billboards in Lebanon saying, Shukran, Russia. Did you see them? I, I have heard of them. and I have seen the pictures on social media, yeah. yeah. Horrible, horrible. So, I mean, I mean, this is one of those cases, and uh, my colleague at the Daily Star, Temur Ashari, wrote about it this week, about how just how night and day the approaches are from Russia and the United States to Lebanon. And w- within this, just how much more Russia is speaking Lebanon's language, uh, as opposed to 
sort of like the broken record diplomacy of the United States on this, which is just single track, anti-Hezbollah, anti-Hezbollah, anti-Hezbollah. Exactly, exactly. And of course, Mike Pompeo's visit also drew another response, and that came from Hezbollah itself. Hassan Nasrallah gave a speech Tuesday evening. He really took it to, to Mike Pompeo and also to the U.S. decision to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the, uh, the the portion of the Jolan, the Golan Heights, uh, that, that they occupy. Yeah, so Nasrallah apparently scheduled his speech before the Jolan thing happened. So uh, what he said in the beginning was, I'm, I was just going to speak about Pompeo, but now that we have this, let me comment on it. And on both things, he was brutal. It was a very fierce kind of speech. He kind of deconstructed everything. He was. It was a speech where he was mobilizing intellectually. He was telling his people how to think about these things, how to analyze what happened. This, is, this was his, his language, and the, 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 the whole speech was framed in this way. It was not like, get up and say, Lebeke and Nasrullah kind of speech. It was like, let's understand what the hell the U.S. is doing in this region. So on the Golan moves, uh, on, the, on the recognition of the Golan, he says that it shows how the Trump administration and the U.S. administration in general is only concerned with Israel's interests when it comes to the Middle East. They have no concern for, you know, self-determination or human rights or sovereignty or democracy or all of these things. They just care about the interests of their closest ally and their what he called their military base, which is Israel. He also said that it proves that the U.S. cannot and should not be part of the peace process in the future because it's obviously not only biased, but it's shaping its whole foreign policy in the region based on Israel's interests. He also said something that is quite interesting, which is the, re- the reactions to the, the decision were so relatively shy that it makes us think, does this whole international community and international institution thing actually work? Does it have any meaning when things when shit hits the fan, when people just annex each other's territories, it doesn't. So we cannot be relying on that. And of course, the conclusion for the leader of Hezbollah would be resistance is the only way forward, etc. But he also, speaking of the Arab summit, which Sha'on was, was attending, he also said, if there is any dignity, if there is any honor among these people, they would at least take the step against, like, respond to the Golan move by by. Uh, withdrawing from the whole peace process and saying we're not gonna accept this this kind of attitude and we're going back to square one and renegotiating etc but what apparently what's gonna happen according to leaks today is that they're just gonna reiterate their previous position which is you know land for peace um give us back the land and we give you the peace which is like just the the most shy kind of way of dealing with with the crisis yeah, the, the summit is actually going on right now as we are recording this. So we have no idea what they're going to do. But let, let's just say Arab summits are not necessarily known for being bold. Not a, not a whole lot of like big policy things, bold policy moves come out of these uh, meetups. True. Usually. And then Nasrallah on Pompeo's speech, he kind of deconstructed the whole speech. He responded to every single point he mentioned that Pompeo said. And he mocked him in some places, the places where he should be mocked, to be honest, like the places where we mocked him in the last episode as well. It's it's almost like somebody listens to our podcast on yeah, that side. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it seems we're we're we noticed the the ridiculous things that we had the common like uh, eye on on what is really ridiculous in Pompeo's speech. And yeah, which just goes to show as well, just like how, I guess, unified the Lebanese are, I think, like in, in viewing 
specifically Mike Pompeo's visit here. Yeah, I mean, when I and and Hassan Nasrallah have the same opinion about something, that means that something must be strikingly like yeah. <laughs> one call it. Yeah. Anyway, um, we don't have to go into the details. He basically um, responded to every point, saying that Israel and the U.S. are the biggest threat and not Hezbollah to Lebanon. He mocked what Pompeo said about, for example, the missile arsenal of Hezbollah and how it could protect Lebanon. Um, and all of these things that the normal responses and, of course, uh, some political mobilization after that. And that's it, basically. That's how the speech ended with, like, with with the last uh, point he mentioned in the in the Pompeo speech and a couple of sentences and was it so it was really like very well focused and and just you know just the response and that's it of course you could only watch Nasrallah's speech Tuesday evening if you had electricity at your place which a lot of places in Lebanon didn't because we had for the fucking third time in the last six months we had another crisis over fuel and electricity like there was not fuel fuel was not able to be paid for and so power plants started to shut down and this time it was Deramar which shut down completely this week because they didn't the Lebanese state didn't pay the fuel companies in time which is absolutely nuts if you remember the first time this happened back in November it was okay well there was no cabinet and all this stuff and there there were a lot of issues and they definitely should have been able to figure this stuff out uh before it became a problem but they didn't uh, but but at the very least there were there they had this excuse of like well we don't have a cabinet and it's harder to do things like make payments make big payments like this the second time this happened in february you know they were just getting their act together the cabinet had just been formed uh and so then they were passing all these things uh uh you know, these allocations for money to pay for fuel, for electricity. In both of those cases, you can sort of like say, oh, okay, all right, all right. There's at least a a slight excuse. This time around, there's just zero excuse. And apparently the payments just weren't signed off on by all of the relevant parties. Uh, EDL claimed that it was the the finance minister, Ali Hassan Khalil, who failed to sign off of it in, in, in time. And by the time he did sign off on the payments, there was bad weather and the ship couldn't dock at Deramar to unload the fuel. And so finally That's the payment, pathetic. the payment got made on Wednesday uh, or finally came through on Wednesday. And then I, I think uh, Thursday and Friday, the fuel was transferred. And so by Saturday, supposedly everything was back up and running. But in the meantime, uh, especially up in the North where Deramar is, you had these huge power cuts, you know, in in uh, in Minye, former uh, MP Kazem Khair told the Daily Star that they were only getting like two out of every twelve hours of electricity, it's like four hours a day, which is nuts. And and that's in an area that's right next to the plant, so it usually gets, I think, upwards yeah. of twenty hours a day. So absolutely nuts for anybody in the north. For Tripoli, they had huge power cuts as well, and and this was because the politicians couldn't get their act together and sign off on paying the companies in time. And speaking about Tripoli, we did have news on that front as well. Friday midnight was the deadline for candidates to file. And so we we know we've got eight candidates so far. Now, they have until Wednesday night at midnight to withdraw, so, uh, but there will be a maximum of eight names on the ballot. Most strikingly, Tahanaji, who brought the appeal that unseated Dima Jumeli, decided not to run. And they held uh, he held a press conference with uh, Faisal Karami, and they said we're going to boycott this election. This was an unjust decision. We won by one vote, but we won, 
and he should have been named MP instead of having this new election that they obviously think that they would lose if they ran. They will 100% lose. I mean, they need Miqati or Rifi. Both of them are not siding with them against Hariri. It's impossible. No, no. Numbers and, wise, and, it's and, impossible. And, yeah, and yeah, and, and Hariri, Jamali, Jamali has obviously Hariri behind her. She has uh, Safadi. She has Rifi. And then Mi'ati also implicitly has backed her. Yeah, so, and she said he backs her. So, khalas, I mean, right, that's it. Right, right, right. Uh, so, so she is virtually assured of winning. However, like I think now the, the question really turns to one of turnout, right? We, we were expecting lower turnout. Now it's going to be like extremely low because everybody sort of knows what the result is going to be. Yeah. And that's really problematic. It raises a lot of questions, I think, now just as far as like democratic legitimacy goes. And it just it'll just look bad if she wins. But there was only, you know, a 10 percent, 15 percent turnout. Yeah, if there's this turnout and she wins, like, she gets, like, 70%. That's really sad for the Constitutional Council, which is supposed to protect our democracy. Right. And one final note, we've got Ruri is back in town. If you recall, last week, he went to Paris and had this uh, precautionary heart procedure, and, and that caused, like, a number of things to be delayed. The Parliament session is now delayed until April 10th. The Cabinet session that they were going to have and talk about the uh, the electricity reform plan that massive one that was delayed to this week so this thursday the cabinet should be acting on that and and that that's really a good thing because you know we we have all of these things that are sort of like stacked up and i feel as though what is holding it up is the electricity file uh for instance the cedar reforms the main cedar reform of cutting the budget slashing the budget deficit well it seems to me as though politicians are putting all their eggs in the basket of the way we're going to do this is we're going to fix electricity because that costs the state, you know, $1.5 billion, $2 billion a year. So if we fix that, then we don't have to do all of these other things, uh, These very make these really painful decisions, these painful cuts in the budget, at, at least not yet. And, yeah. and that's better for us. And so, like, the way, the way I read the way things are going right now is they're going to move on the electricity plan first, and then they're going to get to the budget. Although, I mean, I, I can't believe that there hasn't been a budget yet. You know, we've had a cabinet now for two months and and still nothing and they've only got till the end of may uh, until their funding mechanism runs out the funding mechanism that parliament gave them runs out rather and and so we'll we'll see what happens but they have to get they have to start getting things done a lot more quickly now and also not least because we also had a world bank official in town Ferid Belhaj who is the vice president for the MENA region of the world bank and he was saying you know that Lebanon is a, is in a very precarious position and so far, the reforms do not match what needs to be done. And if Lebanon doesn't reform, they're not going to see a penny of the CEDAR funds, that $11 billion. Yeah, and the World Bank is one of the main agencies involved in this in this money. So $4 billion, yeah. Yeah. All right. So this week, we want to talk about the AMAL movement, which is a huge force in Lebanese politics. They've got one of the largest blocks in parliament right now with 17 seats although not all of those people in the block are with the party. But regardless, and most importantly, they have the speakership. Nabi Berri has been the Speaker of Parliament since, what, 92, I want to say, 93? Yeah, 92. Yeah. And the speaker that is much more than a speaker. Let's let's summarize it this way. He is maybe the central figure in post-war Lebanon, the icon of the warlord-turned-politician uh, who knows how to do politics after the civil war. So Nabi Berri is much more than a speaker of parliament for people listening who are used to, you know, 
normal speakers of parliaments who say order and all of these things that have no real power in society. This guy is, is, is the guy. He's huge. So let's turn back the clock a little bit and see how we got here. Because Nabi Berri is, of course, we're going to be talking a lot about him today. But he wasn't the one who started the Amal movement. He was just the one who has defined it for the past 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. The person who has the biggest legacy on the Amal movement, the figure that is untouchable, is not Nabi Berri. It's Musa Sadr. Musa Sadr was a religious figure, a Shiite religious figure who was born in Iran he rose to prominence among the religious community there in terms of the clergy and the institutions. He was very close to the Ayatollahs. Um, yeah, he was, he was literally from Qom. Exactly. And uh, he studied in Iran. He studied political science and Islam. And then he went to Najaf. And then in the late 50s, I think in 59, he was kind of invited or tasked with going to Lebanon and starting some form of social movement there. So he came to Lebanon and like people didn't know him before that and he's like a tall guy he's like 1 meter 98 centimeters yeah uh, he's huge and like very charismatic anyway so he arrives here and uh, he starts a network of charity organizations that he comes in with a bit of cash and he starts you know opening these institutions and he comes in from this perspective you know charity and why charity because he came to the south to tier in south lebanon and we're talking about the most marginalized social group in Lebanon, pre-war, pre-war Lebanon, it's Shiite Muslims, Shiite Muslims, you know, people who um, are from rural areas who, have, who had been under feudal uh, rule for a, for a while, especially economically, the feudal economic relations were still kind of dominant till the mid 20th century. And he came into a situation where the left was advancing in these areas among the new working class coming out of agriculture, the people who are immigrating to, to Beirut looking for jobs, etc. And you had quite a, a workers' movement happening. The Organization of Communist Action was involved, the Lebanese Communist Party, Progressive Socialist Party and, and other areas. But it was the Lebanese national movement was kind of happening at this time in the late 60s when Musa Sadr was uh, rising, right? And on the other hand, he was fighting against or uh, like ideologically and politically had the other big enemy, which are the feudal people like the clans, the the Assad family, most importantly, who used to be the political representatives of Shias from South Lebanon. And Sadr wasn't very only interested in like creating a movement of like intellectual movement or religious movement or anything. He was going into politics in a very, very strategic way. So what he was doing is basically saying he will kind of advocate for the rights of Shias, for the rights of people of the South, and that they should be better represented in the states and have better institutions and have better development in their area. At the same time, he will have a message that is, you know, national and cross-sectarian. But in a sense, something that people don't realize is that although Musa Sadr is remembered as a national figure more than like a Shiite specifically figure, uh, he was kind of the godfather of Shiite uh, institutionalization in Lebanon like he pressured for the creation of the higher Islamic Shiite council which is basically the first official representation of the Shia sect in the state um, basically Dar al-Fatwa but for Shiites exactly and then when it was created two years later he was elected head of it so by now by now he had already been in Lebanon for around eight years but these eight years were very active and he had formed a huge network of people among the religious community and the clergy, as well as some businessmen, the workers. He had a very populist kind of rhetoric. He could connect with a lot of people from different classes. And uh, this network helped him a lot to gain political leverage. 
and he wasn't even only mobilizing Lebanon like he went on a, on a tour in Africa because we had a lot of immigrants in, in in Africa from South Lebanon and he created a network among them and they were mostly businessmen right they were capitalists but they were kind of sidelined from politics here because politics was about the Assad family and these feudal political families so by the mid 70s he had this full network and this full political movement happening basically uh, he partnered with Hussein Husseini one of the people who were close to him who later became speaker of parliament and together they created the movement of the deprived harakat al-mahrumin in in the mid 70s so it's it's a bit similar to what we were talking about when in in, in the episode about Kamal Jumlat which is this combination between secularism and protecting the rights of religious groups and fighting against the Maronite domination of the state. Both were concerned about these things. At the same time, both had very, very non-sectarian rhetoric in, in, in a way. But of course, Kamal Jumlat was much more, much more secular in his rhetoric. For uh, Sadr, actually, the leftist rhetoric, the secularist rhetoric was the biggest concern he had. And that's something we know also because We know from a book about him that he, uh, by Fuad Ajami, that he told the U.S. ambassador in, in 1974, I think, that the biggest concern to him was these young men who are attracted to communism. Yeah, yeah. There's this, uh, there's a story that I, I came across, across several years ago. I, I, I'll need to go back and actually look it up. But it talks about um, Iraq. I believe uh, it was Ashura in 1958 in Najaf and Karbala. And the ulama there looked out... And basically nobody came out for Ashura. It, 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 the streets were empty because all of, uh, like not all of them, but a lot of the Shiites in Iraq at that time had turned to the Communist Party. And this freaked the, the religious clerics out uh, yeah. a whole lot. And, and so it spurred, it spurred, you know, like the creation of the Dawah Party in, in, in Iraq. Uh, and, and so, you know, of course... Musa Sadr would be aware of this and know about this. I, I mean, it, it, it's his cousins who who are there in Iraq, uh, you know, dealing with this, and and so it makes a whole lot of sense that he would be against communism as as sort of like the the number one threat to the the Shiite clergy to uh, to all of the the power that his family held. Exactly, we had a big communist movement in the Arab world and also around it in Iran, where he um, was born and grew up. The leftist movements and the communists were kind of the other opposition apart from the Islamists, and they were sometimes more, much more prominent than the Islamists. So overall, he knew how much of a threat this is. You had these systems, these oppressive systems or unjust systems, and there's one of two ways to deal with it, either through, you know, religious, religion-based, Islam-based struggle, or through secular struggle. And he understood that this was kind of the choice that people had. So Harakat Mahrumin that he created with with Hassan Husseini and some other people, he brought along some some figures, was kind of the political and social movement from which uh, Harakat Amal was born. So basically, the, the principles that created the, the movement of the deprived is the same manifesto of the Amal movement. Now, right now, if you look up the Amal movement on Facebook, they have the manifesto in their about section, and it's the same thing. It's basically seven principles First one is like humanism, belief in humans as a way of believing in God. So it's not really like very God-centered. It's like, how do we practice our belief in God as religious people, as people who are authentically believers, not through doctrine that is fundamentalist, but by believing in people. This is fundamentally different from other Islamic movements, of course, that we know of. And then there was something that, like the, the pride of, of the roots that we have and the experiences that we have. 
there was the the concept of freedom and the the struggle against injustice and tyranny and feudalism and authoritarianism and sectarianism and all of these structures that Sadr was kind of leading a populist movement against, right? And this was kind of the the secular aspect of it, uh, if you want. And then the other aspect would be the more uh, the one that he used to attract people away, away from the left, which is the economic justice approach. And the section in the manifesto was very, very, you know, lefty in this sense. Uh, it said, the movement rejects economic injustice and its causes, which are the monopoly and investment exerted by a human being against his fellow humans. And look, look, I'm going to stop the quote here and, and say something like, look at this critique of like consumerist capitalism back in the mid-70s. He says, and it is against, and I quote here, the transformation of the citizen into a consumer and the society into a group of consumers and the restriction of economic activity into usury, which is a high interest rate lending, riba, and the transformation of the economy into a market for global production. The movement believes that ensuring job opportunities for all citizens is their most basic right in the nation and that comprehensive social justice is the first of the state's duties. He was like the AOC of his time. <laughs> exactly. It was really the best rhetoric that could attract people away from communists because it says the same thing about this economy and social justice thing, uh, but in, in simpler language with the same kind of pointing at the same things, but not offering the socialist, uh, the socialist answer. Obviously, it had also against colon- uh, principles against colonialism for national sovereignty. It was quite a Lebanese movement to a big extent. It's, it's focused on Lebanon and the Lebanese sovereignty, Lebanese people, and how the South is important for Lebanon. It's only mentioned once, the South in the manifesto, Shia or whatever. All of this is not mentioned in the, in the manifesto, of course. And it mentions Palestine, which, is, which uh, it calls a sacred land, and that it's at the heart of the movement and that Zionism is the biggest threat against Lebanon. And finally, it, it, it f- finishes with this idea that this movement is across religious groups and it rejects any kind of categorization based on sect. So you see how, how Sadr was playing this game. He was, he was creating a movement that was much bigger than a small Shiite politician. At the same time, he, was, he knew how to mobilize this population to, to have a very strong social base to make this national case based on it. So it's a bit similar to what Jumblat was saying, but Sadr kind of got his message, maybe like in, in populations where Jumblat could not reach, in Tripoli, in, in Akkar, in places that, you know, in, in Sunni areas, but places that, you know, maybe the secular uh, rhetoric of Jumblat would not work. So so that is Harakat al-Mahrameen, you know, like the, this, this great... A idea, you know, like both on paper and, and obviously had a lot of uh, uh, resonance with the people themselves. But then we have the addition of, of a new element once the Lebanese Civil War breaks out, and that is arms. Exactly. So when 1975 was approaching, the Civil War was approaching, uh, Sadr had already started building his militia, but it wasn't public. It wasn't public until actually something happened, which was a big explosion in, in East Lebanon, in Bekaa, in a Fatah training camp, that we understood that he already had trained his, his militiamen. But he announced in June 1975 the Amal movement, which is, Amal is three letters in Arabic, meaning hope. At the same time, it stands for Afwaj al-Muqawam al-Lubnaniyya, the Lebanese resistance regiments. 
and he was saying now it's time to carry arms and he was not talking about fighting against other Lebanese or the Palestinians he was saying we should resist we should have a popular resistance against the Israelis so kind of what there is the the rhetoric of Hezbollah is today so it's very important to to understand that Sadr was not a civil war kind of uh, figure uh, he was more of a resistance kind of uh, but icon. at the same time you can't really disentangle the two because if you you if you're another actor on the Lebanese political scene at that time or the Lebanese security scene at that time and you have a movement that is armed on your territory yeah they might say they're against Israel but it, it all depends on where they're pointing their weapons at that time and it, and there's always the potential that they could t- turn those weapons on you and this is kind of what happens later, right? But the first years of the civil war didn't see uh, Harakat Amal being heavily involved in it at all. Uh, Sadr in the, fir- in the beginning was totally against it. He went on hunger strike saying like, I will not eat until they form a unity government. And he was like very actively saying, this war is a stupid idea. Like really, he said he said something in the meaning of that. He said like this is a politically reckless idea that people are not calculating well. They don't know what they're getting us into. Uh, he was criticizing the left, which he was much closer to than the right, of course. Uh, he was m- close to the Lebanese national movement and kind of with them in the beginning. But then when they won over 80% of the territory and the Syrians uh, intervened to kind of save the, the Christians' ass in, in the country, he uh, supported the Syrian intervention. So it kind of broke up with the, with the left. But still he was not engaged in like very actively in the fighting. And this relationship that he built with Syria, this alliance that he built with Syria, has been probably the most consistent political alliance in the history of Lebanon, the modern history. Yeah, it, it's endured, you know, long after him. It's still happening today, and it's been 44 years of Lebanese history where two actors are still allied. It's fascinating. In the next two years, he was quite involved in the, in the Iranian opposition, quite active uh, against the Iranian uh, regime. But then soon after the story ends, right? In 1978, August, he was invited by uh, Muammar Qaddafi, the ruler of Libya, on a visit there. And he goes there and six days later, it was a long visit apparently, six days later he disappears. No one claims responsibility. No one knows who, who did it. Qaddafi says, I don't know what happened to him. It's very bad for our reputation. He has a very, very ridiculous speech on this. And he just just says, maybe he left to Italy. I th- we think he left to Italy. And then there was no absolutely no evidence that he left to Italy. His baggage was still there. Anyway, all of these things happened. We, everyone kind of realizes that Qaddafi got rid of him. And Nabi Hibari today and everyone in the Amal movement blames Libya for it. So basically, no one knows what happened to him. Still today, after the Libyan revolution, after Gaddafi was murdered, Harakat uh, Amal and Lebanon requested a, an official like investigation into the issue. They don't know what happened. We don't have any real evidence so far. We have testimonies by some people, uh, but not real uh, tangible evidence. Anyway, Amal still believes that it doesn't uh, announce at any point, it didn't announce that he's dead or that he's not coming back. They still, every conference they have, they still say that their first priority is that Musa Sadr returns safely. For people who are wondering in their heads, yes, he would be very old. He would be exactly 91 today, if like this year, if he is alive. And it's possible, you know, my grandfather is 91. 
it's totally possible. But the fact that he didn't appear at any point after he that he was disappeared, disappeared makes people think, of course, he's not hiding. Yeah, but like so, and so this is like part of the I guess mythology within the party though that like he, he is returning. We are waiting for his return. He is still alive, and and, and the, there's been no no sign that that will change. Yeah, exactly. And it's very useful, as you're saying, as as a, as an icon, as a mythology to to keep this thing going it's really useful and it moves people yeah i mean in, in a lot of ways like he he became this uh, he, he was a towering figure like literally in real life as you mentioned mm. he, he was also <laughs> just like this this hugely charismatic person who built this uh, enormous movement really tapped into something a fundamental imbalance in lebanon that just saw the exploitation of, of an entire swath of the population and and so he's just like this huge figure and after his disappearance he became sort of like not a martyr, even more than a martyr, as in mm. like he's the martyr who could come back. Yeah, know? and and don't forget the 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 analogy here because we're talking about twelve Shiite Islamism, right? We're talking about an Imam who disappeared and might come back. Right, right. So that's very very strong as an analogy. Okay, so after he disappears, we have this movement that he built that is with, with without its main figure anymore. Hussein Hosseini steps in to the mm. role for a bit, but he doesn't really want to get involved in the civil war and all the stuff that's going on. And relatively quickly, we see a new leader ascend, Nabi Birri, who is still the leader today. And so Nabi Birri really is the, the guy who took Amal after Musa Sadr's disappearance. He took Amal basically through the civil war and all of the battles and blood that that entails. Exactly. So Birri was the politician, the militiaman, the warlord who knew how to play the civil war game. He was on every negotiation table. He was making himself very significant in the equation. And he fought with everyone to prove it. You know, he fought with, with the state and the Lebanese army against Amin Jmail in 1984 when he allied with Walid Jumblat in the Intifada of 6, uh, February 6th. He signed the Trapatite Agreement with uh, in Damascus with Jumblat and Elih Bayar, representing the Lebanese forces in 1985, basically trying to end the civil war and, and, and accepting Syrian dominance over Lebanon. It was foiled and uh, Elih Bayar was deported. He fought a long and very deadly war against the Palestinians called the War on Camps or the War of the Camps for many years in the late 80s. And he fought against Hezbollah as well quite heavily and people should see this speech people who can understand arabic should uh, listen to the speech that he was giving informally to people in in i don't know where i think it was in south lebanon and he was saying in nabati maybe he was saying hezbollah has killed more of our leaders than israel like israel killed this and that hezbollah has killed this one and that one this one that one it's a very powerful speech and it's so so famous it's viral so so check it out uh, we'll put the link of, of the video but anyway they had very long like very very deadly kind of confrontation with hezbollah over dominance over shiite politics and it didn't end until the syrians literally walked into the alleys of southern suburbs of beirut and just like took over uh, under Berri's approval um and kind of annihilated uh, Hezbollah's dominance temporarily in in specific areas. But the real solution to this was a Damascus agreement between Hezbollah and, and Birri that said both of them are significant in the Shiite political scene, so let's stop fighting each other. It was until 1989 that they got along, actually. Yeah, and so with, with this agreement and with the end of the civil war more generally, more broadly in Lebanon, we see the transformation of Nabi Berri, the leader of 
of Amal, the leader of this movement, the leader of this militia, this warlord, transform into this sort of master politician. He becomes a minister, and then he gets elected to parliament and becomes the speaker of, of the house. Exactly. So Berri is kind of the the icon of post-war Lebanese politics. He's the Zaim, the model of, of how to be a Zaim in post-war Lebanon because he was managing this huge militia, a lot of fighters and this huge political economy of, you know, managing ports illegally and like having these networks with, with businessmen and smuggling and all of these things that every single militia had and having their own tax, private taxation, etc. into a political party that's operating within the state. So how do you translate that? First of all, his militiamen, like a lot of militiamen in Lebanon, were brought into the Lebanese uh, army and security forces. So now they're, they're officers. And the political economy of his organization, how he has the clientelist networks that he has started to be transformed from the parastate kind of things, the, the, the non-state actors, non-state entities, into doing the same process from inside the state. And that's why he's the master of, of post-war politics, because he understood how to use the state's resources to maximize the share of the, his constituents, the Shiites mostly of South Lebanon, but also of some in the East, into the state, and to increase their representation and to make sure that they have very strong political representation. This is the kind of Zahim, the same as Walid Jumblat, trying to maximize the share of their sectarian community and the resources that they get from it. In this uh, post-Civil War, time, it's really interesting to look at the politics then of the Amal movement and of Nabi Berri. And like you say, he's been just like a steadfast ally of Damascus. Yeah, it's been a very steady and consistent alliance with, of course, some bumps, but nothing very major. And also, apart from having being the Syrian regime's guy, he's also kind of the political cover of Hezbollah. Hezbollah and Amal have been quite close for a while. Yeah, which is crazy given the history that we just talked about. They fought each other, like they killed each other. But but then after, you know, after they made up, Nabi Berri and the Amal movement ends up being sort of like the public face of Hezbollah in a certain sense, like the political face of Hezbollah. And increasingly so throughout the years as well. Increasingly so till a certain period of time. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But the, the fact that they were both under Syrian dominance and they understood that Syrians were the ultimate authority in the country and they were both dealing with it in a smart way, which is let us operate, let us do the things we want to do uh, while we, you know, we accept your dominance. So they had this system whereby Hezbollah is mostly managing the military things and being occupied there with the, the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon until 2000 and with the struggle against Israel. And Birri would be the Shiite of, of the state guy, you know, the person who hires people, gets a lot of resources to Shiite areas, gets representation, is the ultimate Shiite political figure in terms of inside the state as, as representatives. He knows the Americans, he knows the Fr French, the Saudis, he's friends with everyone. Everyone comes to his, uh, to, his, uh, to his place. He doesn't go visit people. Like, people come to him and, like, discuss with him things and ask him for things exactly. Yeah, yeah like, almost uniquely, he has no enemies. Right, it, internationally. It, it's... Yeah, no no one wants to be this, his enemy because he's really important because he can land you with like any actor in the country without any big effort. And until recently, re really, until like the recent feud with, with the FPM, I had rarely seen anyone being rude against Birri since I became interested in politics. People are where, even when they hated March 8, when Birri was like half of March 8, 
they still didn't weren't very rude to him so he has played this official like political cover to Hezbollah thing and now they're still allied very strongly so in the elections and elsewhere but Hezbollah is not satisfied at all anymore after 2005 Hezbollah has been in every cabinet before Hezbollah wasn't interested in cabinet, in ministerial positions they weren't ask, asking for ministerial positions as in starting 2005 i remember there was a Naim Qasim speech where he said Naim Qasim is the deputy leader of Hezbollah exactly he said now we don't trust the executive authority anymore to leave everything up to them we want to be in the state and this was a turning point but Hezbollah were already much more powerful they mobilize much better their structures the party structures are amazing at mobilizing people they have very strong ideological mo- motor like a, a dynamic engine that drives everything forward which is this very strong fundamentalist ideology that Berry doesn't have and he he was losing grounds to them he's losing popularity to them and now Hezbollah are not anymore like satisfied with Berry at, at the same time they still respect this deal that they have which is that he is this ultimate national figure that we don't we don't try to take away anything of his credibility Really, what Hezbollah is doing is kind of waiting for him to die and to replace him with Jamil Said or someone close to Hezbollah and close to the Syrian regime as Speaker of Parliament and then take over what is left of, of animal movement. But right now, they still treat him with like the most respect and they give them credit sometimes to Amal about in things that they don't need to give them credits in, like resistance and fighting the Israelis, etc. And, and, and can I just say one of the drivers of Hezbollah's I guess annoyance with Nabi Berri's leadership in the in in the state, and that that drove them to get involved in the first place and and take on larger roles within the state was actually it, it was Nabi Berri's business model itself. Uh, it was it was this thing that at least was viewed to be extraordinarily corrupt and very much depended on who you knew or having the right connections. That sort of helped spur Hezbollah into well, no, we we don't want to be viewed as the dirty side of politics here. You know, we want we want clean politics. Part of this anti-corruption drive, for instance, exactly, that, yeah. that's spurred on by this, and and their popularity is as well. Indeed, people see Amal as a party that has no like structure apart from Nadir Berri and you know his people. And this is one of the interesting things about Amal: the way that Amal has maintained its dominance in the Shiite community. It's not dominance, maybe it's popularity. It's very wide popularity. And you should look at Nabi Berri's numbers in the elections. They're crazy. He's insanely popular. Apart from doing these things that matter most to people, providing large funds and projects, they have these social structures of not dominance, but kind of recruitment of young men, especially and young people into their community in a way that's very interesting and it's very successful among working class communities and it's really contradicting with the like big modernist slash you know kind of liberal image of Amal you know Amal supports for example the quota for women representation in parliament which Hezbollah is definitely against they take pride in the idea that they are not as ideological and as fundamentalist as conservative as Hezbollah the secular thing is very important to them because it's what distinguishes them because otherwise everyone goes to Hezbollah but the way they do it is recruit people through religious ceremonies especially through specifically Ashura you wouldn't believe how connected the Ashura is to Amal in, for example, the part of Beirut that I grew up in, in West Beirut. Amal's chants are the most common chants in Ashura, like the chants that they sing about Hussein. They're mixed with chants they think, sing about Musa Sadr. So the same one would be about both. And 
they are all kind of structured around men wearing black in neighborhoods, each one having their own like little jurisdiction around the neighborhood. But together they feel empowered by this moment every year when there's Ashura and they create this alert as if there's something coming, someone coming to target the Shiite community. And they create all of these like huge security measures, etc. And they show their arms and all of these things every year to reassure assure people that they are here. They are still a militia to a great extent and they can protect them if something happens. They are more like we're the working class and we will do everything the Lebanese way, the way it should be done. And this is attractive. This is very well, powerful. The, the, the tab, it taps into a certain pride. Exactly. And it's also interesting that that is Ashura. You know, this, this religious festival... It, it, it is not owned by the overtly religious party. And, and I think that goes back a lot to the, the roots of the Amal movement, which is Imam Musa Sadr. Yeah, exactly. So this is how Musa Sadr's legacy is continued. But he's not like Kamal Jumblat in terms of like spoken of as an intellectual figure. He's spoken of as a spiritual figure. He's a, he's a leader that is beyond other like people, not only a politician bigger than life. He's someone who is who represents, he's like a prophet. Okay, he's spoken of as if he is a prophet and not as if he is like a, a leader. And this is the the thing, the tool, the technique that Hezbollah doesn't use. That you know, Hezbollah they they appreciate him, they talk about him sometimes, but they don't try to appropriate him. And I think I think that's part of the unspoken deal between them and and Birri and and the Amal movement. Musa Sadr is one of the biggest assets. Birri is a very different kind of huge asset as well which is we have the most intelligent and strong and pragmatic politician in Lebanon who's been enormously successful exactly enormously successful in managing this post-war system but as a political party really how many people can name more than two or three people from Amal no one really I mean we can name maybe five because we know the ministers but that's it Right, which leads us to that big question. You know, Nabi Berri is very old. He's 82 now, is that right? I think so. And so there, there's naturally a question of, well, what comes after Nabi Berri? You know, after he either decides to retire or leaves this world, who is going to lead the Amal, the Amal movement? Well, who knows? Like, literally, this is one of those huge, huge questions in Lebanese politics. It's going to be an absolute earthquake when he leaves, and, and no, nobody really knows uh, Who's going to be the decision maker? Is Randa Biri going to step in? Is his son uh, Basil going to step in? Or his son-in-law, Bussam Ashur? What is his role going to be? What What about his political aides, Ali Hassan Khalil? Nobody really knows how things are going to shake up. And he doesn't but... seem to be preparing anyone for it. You know, he doesn't make an effort, for example, to bring his son along or his wife along, or uh, Randa as his wife, or, you know, Ali Hassan Khalil. Ali Hassan Khalil is the closest to him. He's his right hand. But he never gives him too much, you know, credit. He doesn't put him in a situation where he looks like the boss. Right, and, and this is in contrast to that other political earthquake, of Michelle Aoun. Once Michelle Aoun leaves, who's going who's gonna to run the FPM? Well, obviously, Gibran Basile will, at least in title, run the FPM. Yeah. And he's preparing him for that. And he's, you know, he did everything possible to make Gibran Basil more thought of as a leader, while Berri has not done that. And, you know, to think with you about, you know, that question of what would happen after Berri dies or Berri leaves, I think the only thing that makes sense to me is that it will remain in the Berri house. It will remain in Ainatini. It cannot go to another family or another, like it cannot be Ali Hassan Khalil because it's a family business. 
which is interesting if you consider the history that we just spoke about how it was founded as being against like these this, you know like the large Assad family for instance yeah they're a feudal family of a new kind uh, politically feudalist but economically so as well increasingly so what is not clear is politically who's going to manage the party is Randa Berri is going to go and like make speeches and in, in party conferences and mobilize people and peop- will people like pledge allegiance to her the same way that they do to Berri will they see her the same way if there's no drastic transformation in politics and this is a question that Hezbollah enjoys a lot I think because they're looking at this as the ultimate opportunity to completely dominate Shiite politics in Lebanon and everyone I speak to including Amal supporters kind of realize that this is going to happen eventually. Hezbollah will take a big part of what Amal currently holds. Right, right. Like, literally, no one can fill Nabi Berri's shoes. Yeah. There's there's no one. No one can do it. And so that means Amal will be weakened. That means Hezbollah will definitely have a lot more power. So yeah, this is the, this is the big question in Lebanese politics. And I think we're going to have to leave it there. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully with a fully functional and alive and well Nizar. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.